Previously on Kurt's Burbs Blurbs. The only tattoo he has is of the movie The Burbs. Maybe I should go watch this movie. Tonight on Kurt's Burbs Blurbs. This is like a callous thing to say, but I feel like this Burbs podcast won't mean shit in 2030. But, <laughs> but like... Ouch. Kurt B. Burbson. Kurt B. Blurbson. Kurt B. Burbson now. Kurt B. Burbson. Kurt B. Blurbson. It's Kurt's Burbs Blurbs time now. It's Kurt's Burbs Blurbs time now. What up, what up, what up, neighbors and lunatics? Dr. Kurt Money here with Kurt's Burbs Blurbs, the only podcast dedicated to the 1989 Joe Dante masterpiece, The Burbs. Now, it's been a while. Dr. Money has been in quarantine and a number of other issues that uh, a lot of us are dealing with right now. Uh, This episode right now is with a new friend of mine named Jason Hellerman. He wrote the 2016 drama Shovel Buddies starring Bella Thorne. I watched it last night. It's dope. I loved it. And for a drama about like a friend's death, there's some dope uh, practical effects, like some car flipping. I want to know how they did the cement scene. Anyway, it's good stuff. We went back on track. So as you'll hear in this episode, I kind of come to some new conclusions. Like he helps me find a little bit more specific reason of why I get all those burbs and done. So that kind of scared me off of it. And then T. Hanks himself got diagnosed with coronavirus. And I was like, what? And then we all had to go home and I got laid off along with 90% of the other people in LA. Uh, So I got plenty of time on my hands in the cave. I got some new blackout curtains. So I truly, truly got to make a special effort to go outside for that vitamin D. Um, Going to get to the episode because it's a long one. Uh, I got another one in the can with Martha that I need to edit. And I did an experimental episode where I recorded my friend Danielle without her knowledge. But then I asked her if it was cool during the recording. And she, she was okay with it. It was funny. Anyway, I'm going to cut that out. Uh, I did a test record recording KBB's number one fan, Danielle. Did a little secret remote record. Swore I would never do them, but since we're all in quarantine and stuff, we might have to. Because... I can't just keep coming up with the old solo burbs and we know how well those go. And look, don't even talk about the Sentinel. No, I I didn't see that. Check out Jason's movie. Uh, Twitter, Instagram stuff is at Jason Hellerman. And again, his name is Jason Hellerman. Now listen, this was the second time where I had a guest where I didn't know him going into this. And we come out of this thing best buds. So I was like kind of nervous and I was thinking, okay, just remember the name. You don't want to accidentally trip up on the name in the intro. And then I started to think about from the XFM days with uh, the Ricky Gervais show where Carl was told not to call his boss Rick or something or mention the size of his head or whatever. But so in that moment, I thought of that Carl story and I froze and I totally tripped up like I didn't know his name, but I did. And he was a good sport about it. But anyway, he was playing an excellent armchair psychiatrist in the cave on this day pre-quarantine. Jason showed up with his own notepad, okay, and we recorded for two hours. That is way longer than I promise to end this for people. So, and it was a great chat. Anyway, so thanks to Jason for coming on, and uh, thanks to the Burbs for being so dope and being there for me during this quarantine, where it's just like Kurt Cave weekends, seven days a week. Loving it. Uh, okay. What up, what up, what up, neighbors and lunatics? Dr. Kurt Money here, host of the only podcast dedicated to the 1989 Joe Dante masterpiece, The Burbs. I am here with Jason Hellerman. Oh, my God. Dude, I was blanking on the last name. I'm sorry. I'm going to do that again. Yeah, Hellerman, like H-E-L-L, like The Burbs, go to hell. Yeah. There we go. There you go. Yeah. <laughs> the next day. 
<laughs> Sorry, dude. <laughs> uh, no, no worries. So what's up? How's it going? Well, we just watched the Burbs and it was fucking dope. Yes! So what, what are your first thoughts on the cave when you come in here? It feels like I walked into a 14-year-old's room <laughs> that like his parents got divorced and they're like, you can do anything you want. Dude, that is a really funny way to put it. It's kind of true because I got divorced and said I can do whatever I want. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And then got credit cards and said, yeah. uh. <laughs> That's a shit story anyway. So wait, tell me tell me your Burb Street. That's your history with the Burbs. It's one hell of a neighborhood. Growing up, I was a huge movie fan. My dad loved movies. My brother loved movies. My mom loves movies, but like loves PG-13 tops movies. You know, like yeah. it doesn't... She doesn't party she, with the yeah, others. Just, yeah, you're not going to see her seeing Lust Caution anytime soon. <laughs> um, we've gone on a lot of family trips, and I can tell you that the first time I saw the Burbs was in Duck, North Carolina. I was probably seven or eight years old. It was raining. We were staying in a uh, like a beach house down there. We would go every summer, and oh. it was on TNT. Limited commercial interruptions. My parents love Tom Hanks, and most of his movies were always like pretty accessible for us, you know? I remember us making microwavable popcorn. We should have been at the beach, but it was raining. From that moment, it just was such a big deal to me because it felt like a movie that was more adult than I was that I was allowed to watch. Hell yeah. But it also, I grew up like cul-de-sac adjacent, you know? Like I lived in that kind of neighborhood in this place where you thought that could happen. There was a scary house around the corner from us, you know, that we always pretended like a witch lived in really yeah it's like the full embodiment of that and being let's say eight years old and seeing that seeing tom hanks who i at that point knew who he was as an actor from big just locking in apollo 13 came out that summer i can tell you that whatever summer apollo 13 came out that's the first time i watched the burbs it was certainly not the last time it's one of those movies i have gone back to over and over again and look the burbs is never gonna win any oscars and i wouldn't sit here and say it should be but i do think it's why would yeah, there you go. Yeah. But I think it's something that should be canonized. And I think that the core values and the things that they're talked about in movies like The Burbs are part of America or part of Americana. Right. And I think this is one of those underseen movies that a lot of people can identify with. Totally. It's interesting today and almost even more interesting today than in 1989. I'm going to Banff, Canada. All right. That's where I'm going. Did you said you were at a place called Duck? Duck, yeah. Duck, North Carolina. That's wild. Hey, yeah. I loved uh, my grandparents had a lake cottage. Okay. So we would go there in the summers for a week or whatever. And I would love when it rained because I could guilt-free watch television. Right. Because we didn't have cable and the cottage did. Yeah. And, and my dad would fucking be on me all the time about like watching TV and not waking up early or whatever. Blah, you're wasting your yeah. day. <laughs> but when it's raining, it's like, sorry, dad, nothing to do. I got to watch TV. That's, I feel like, very similar to the way I grew up in that we didn't have cable. There weren't that many, whatever, network television shows that I was interested in as a kid, but movies were that gateway. And if my parents were going out and couldn't get a babysitter, it was like, here's all three Back to the Future, just watch these. By the time we're done, I'll be home from work. You know, here's all the Indiana Joneses. So it was like a lot of movie series or long movies. My brother and I would prioritize like renting things that we felt were long because we were only wild to watch one movie a week we wanted it to be a long what? you know it's like a long that's thing. awesome so Dude, that's such a wild thing for kids to be like we need to pick a longer movie so we can just be watching a movie for a longer time yeah that's we awesome. have it yeah and then and it really was negotiating back and forth i have a twin brother so it's what? like you're a twin i'm a twin yes yeah. crazy way to go mom so it was like you didn't have to choose it wasn't like i had to like pick some kid thing for him or like we were always the same age yeah. so we always had the same thing so it was like he'd negotiate and get the lawnmower man and i'd be like great i'm into the lawnmower man and i'll negotiate and get something that like you are more into and we'll 
will rent like small soldiers, you know, I'll right. stick with, I'll hey. say with the Joe, Joe Dante thing. So it's like, you'd find things that he was much more into like hard sci-fi and I was more into comedy things, but you could like meet in the middle with weirdly like Jackie Chan or James Cameron, you know, totally. and it's like things that were there for everybody. Absolutely. But I right. can distinctly tell you being in Duck, North Carolina, it raining, watching the burbs, and then much later in life realizing someone wrote that movie right. and that that's a job you can do if you just are willing to write every day and then right. take a lot of rejection. Yeah. Boy, that's pretty sweet. That's cool because you've done it. Are you a writer? That's all you do. That is all uh. I do. I work for No Film School as well and write like a movie blog for them that's mostly like teaching people how to write screenplays. Oh, cool. Um, walking people through that and then some movie news or just like random articles about like how to do something in Hollywood, you know, like right. focusing, hyper-focusing on character introductions or something like that. Right. And well, then, yeah. Dude, how about character introduction in this Burbs? Yeah. The sweep of the street, we meet all of them almost. <laughs> Everyone. I think what's interesting, we start the movie so late in the story, yeah. right? It's like, we, we the Klopeks have moved in, murdered someone, and are living next door up to their hijinks, and we start with Tom Hanks realizing like, hey, it's weird at night. I've never introduced myself to these people, but they have something going on. It smells like they're cooking a goddamn cat over there. It's it's amazing, and, and you're right. We meet everyone in the way that defines them, right? So Bruce Dern's hanging a flag, and his smoking hot younger wife is yeah. going to like, join uh, him. yeah, join him. There's a dog that craps on a lawn that we the, see that makes him, and like that's how you meet Walter. Queenie, you know, he's like, I don't care if my dog yeah. shits in your yard, but well, I because he knows yeah. it because he says exactly like, oh, you know, that lawn yeah. needed fertilizing anyway. Right, exactly. Yeah, because he doesn't. Uh, there's no upkeep. You know, Ricky is home alone, which right. is amazing, and and you sort of understand who. That is. This is Rumsfield. No tan lines this morning. Looks nice. Just going around, it's it's these fun archetypes of characters and just getting into the hijinks and like who's there and yeah. I mean, it's so cool because like the movie opens with the dope ass open shot. Which have you seen Burn After Reading? Oh yeah. So they do that too. Yeah. But theirs is just like Google Earth zoom in, so it doesn't fucking. It's not cool. I mean, I love. I love. <laughs> I mean, it's about the CIA spying on you from satellites, so it's like. A, good point, dude. Yeah. <laughs> that's a good counter. Yeah. yeah. That is a very good counter. Yeah, that's what it is. I mean, it's saying like we can spy on you anywhere and look at you, and this is if we really looked close enough, this is who we'd find, which is a bunch of fucking idiots, you know? Right. You think that's just win? No. But in this, right, the this is a microcosm for anywhere USA. Yeah. Right? Where, the, where na- these neighborhoods occur all over the globe. This is just one of them, and this could be happening next door to you. Yeah. Yeah. Dude, you're blowing my mind about Burn After Reading. Maybe I can get it running. But it's cool to watch a studio movie that, you know, like was a release with stars. Tom Hanks. That has practical effects and just believes it in a way that that fully sells the movie because I think if you redid this movie and you and I talked about possible remake ideas and well, I you, think, you had a interesting I think this yeah I think this movie so. is like right for a remake but you'd want to do it with practical effects but I think this is the Jordan Peele movie that I'd love to see it's like I know he's spending time doing Candyman and, and I think Get Out's like an amazing original and I actually think Us was pretty underrated for what it is I love Us um, and I love Get Out his TV stuff he's produced I'm not a fan of Hunter's no good. Twilight Zone, <laughs> no good. See yeah, Doc. Later, Rube. Bye, Hans! I call the Burbs when I pitch it to people now. It's like the best 9-11 movie made, you know, 11 years before 9-11. <laughs> but it is like the, if you see something, say something movie, right? It's a, it's about casual spying on your neighbors. There's this weird religious undertone, not just in the Satanism. Walter was a human sacrifice. You know, when they go to the house, we talk about when they're spying, right? 
Tom Hanks is like, well, we're not going to light a cross on their front yard. It's like, okay, these are characters that live in a world where they understand what a hate crime is. Well, that can be arranged. But also, the first thing Bruce Dern asks when they're inside the house is, so you guys Catholics? Or, yeah. you know, which is sort of, again, a backhanded reference to like, he's probably, you know, was like an Episcopalian or whatever the, it's like the Protestants hate the Catholics, hate the whatever. It's like this interesting um, white anger, yeah. which is so ever present today in 2020. And I think in 1989, when this movie came out, we were angry at Russia, right? So like the choice of the Klopex, their accent, who they'd be, why they're spying on them is very interesting. It's like maybe pre-Berlin Wall falling down. Like, Well, I we, think Dr. Yeah. Klopex supposed to be like uh, Mengele or something. Yeah. Like a yeah. Nazi doctor. Yeah, I, I thought that too. It's tough, I think, because we never fully decide on what it is. But but if you even look, look, Bruce Stern's character, Vietnam War vet who was like in the shit. It was 18 months in the bush and I could snap your neck in a heartbeat. Who maybe hasn't shaken it, who's like carrying a gun around his neighborhood. This yeah. is stuff that is still happening today. And I think, again, if you would do it today maybe you keep the original ending of the burbs right which is like we spied on these people and ruined their lives and right i think there's a good 30 rock episode mm-hmm. where uh, tina fey's character thinks her neighbor is uh, training for a 9-11 type situation oh no not now i don't know maybe i'm just being paranoid if a bleeding arm liberal like you has any suspicion i know right but instead he's training for the amazing race yeah, yeah, yeah. and it's an amazing the way that episode ends is like she rats him out to Homeland Security. He survives after being brutally tortured, and she thinks she's actually like created a terrorist by yeah. doing that. Nice ringtone, Jack. It's not my ringtone. I hate that San Francisco sound. I always come back to like the Burbs, just in general. To me, feels like a mini series. I love the movie. I think it's perfect. I would never argue that it's not. But when I think about the story it tells and and why it's held up so long, it's because so many of us grew up in neighborhoods across the country, across the world, had somebody in their neighborhood that you thought. Oh, that's the weird house. That's the weird name. That's yeah. whoever. Let's do this again sometime. Uh, what this movie asks, the question is like, is it your social responsibility to do it? Who knows? And I don't think there are answers to this. And I'm sorry to anybody listening that's like maybe triggered by those questions of like, is he trivializing what these things are? Because I don't want to come across as that either. But I, that's how deep I think the Burbs is. Is it worth asking these questions? Because like, if you look at art, right, he's such a piece of shit neighbor. Hey, you want a dog? He doesn't care about evidence, right? He cares about conspiracy. Yeah. It's based on, hey, remember? Remember that guy who killed his family? Right. And he was the soda, the soda jerk? Yeah, yeah, like, yeah. Like, Which you said was based on a real thing. I think it's based on a real story. So there's a story in New Jersey that I know is a fact, and I'm going to get the murderer's name wrong, but you can look it up. I believe it's the 1980s. So this guy, he gets fired from his job, and he's depressed. He has four kids and a wife. And he fakes going to the job for three months till he's like completely out of money. And he's like, oh my God, I'm going to have to tell them. And instead of telling them, he gets up in the morning, gets dressed, drives his kids to school, goes home, and murders his wife and his baby and then he waits for his two kids to be done high school I think high school or middle school goes picks them up drives them back home murders them now everybody's dead in his entire house except for him Whoa! and he calls the school and goes I'm taking my family on a surprise two week vacation they'll be back in a couple weeks calls his wife's job and calls her out I'm taking on a thing calls like everybody in the family to make sure nobody comes to check on them oh my god you're such a great dad enjoy boards up his entire house leaves and is never heard from again 20 years later, what? It's, it's on America's Most Wanted. Your tips will immediately be turned over to the U.S. Marshal Service. And they find him with a new family in Florida. What? And he's gotten a new job. He's like faked a new Social Security like no. card. Yep. And he's Wait, re- the family in the school never said, hey, that two weeks had never... So they, eventually, never like, uh, that two weeks were up. 
people came a month later and looked, found all the dead bodies in the house, and were like, the dad's gone. They couldn't find him. Yeah, couldn't him. find him. He just disappeared. So they're like, Dude, oh. why? And then he would get found 20 years later with a new family in Florida. It's was crazy. Was he a soda jerk? <laughs> he was not. He was like an insurance salesman or oh, something, okay, like yeah, whatever, yeah. It was a night just like this that had happened. Soda jerk's more fun for the movie. Yeah, but I love that idea of someone snapping, right? And then, El snap and then because snap that's really what this is about. Like, what would it take for you to snap, right? Yeah. And Ray's on vacation. You can assume he is going through a midlife crisis of, I guess this is what my life is. I'm going to be with my beautiful wife who loves me, but I don't want to say like the sex is gone, but right. like we sit watching this. So you're going to your mom's. You know, uh, Art is your neighbor, and he's uh, hates his wife. It's going to be a big week for the bachelor kid. Awesome. You know, and he's like a slob and grotesque, and yeah. sort of like espouses those uh, probably toxic masculinity, like, uh, yeah. but also is like kind of a schlub, you know. And then kind of like grave diggers. Maybe. All right, that's enough of this conversation. We debate where it takes place. We debate when it is. And right, we, and do we we debate how long it is? Now those can be argued to the cows come home, which is good for me in a podcast that I never want to end. Of course, yeah. But there are ways that you can make general guesses, but then something else will contradict it, and it's fine because it's any town USA. It's it's a movie town. It's, it's absolutely yeah. so like it doesn't it doesn't matter. It's they, funny because like a lot of times in writing they say like be specific because yeah. specificity is a character, but in this it almost makes more sense not to be specific because it's scarier thinking it could be your neighborhood, right? Yeah, you read you've read story. Absolutely. The yeah. part when he's like he asked the writer where the location was and he says, Any town USA and then Robert McKee's like, No. Yeah. Yeah, I I have like a love hate relationship with Robert McKee because I, I think he <laughs> I think he does a lot for people, but I also think he charges a lot of money and if you're in storytelling for the money, it's then write something, you know, like right. I, I think there's a, an illusion of grandeur behind like the idea of like a guru or someone can fix everything. So much of story and storytelling is an open dialogue. What I love about the burbs is it feels like it's an open dialogue with the audience. Mm-hmm. You're constantly asked to decide whether or not you think what they're doing is right or wrong. You're constantly put in a position of, am I on his side and angry or do I feel awkward that the actions they're taking are whatever. And, and, and that's why it's good that Ricky Butler absolutely. is in his position because yeah. he's neutral. Yeah. He's kind of, participating sometimes but he's there with the audience going okay this is this person this is that person see the guy with the curly hair that's Mr. Peterson and I think that's a nice thing about the man and woman thing it's like I'm glad it doesn't become this uh, war of the sexes because I do think there is two genders going on here in an interesting way of like the hyper masculine men who are afraid to confront these other men, the women who are smart enough to say, all you have to do is knock on the front door. But yeah. then both of them come to the same conclusion, which is this: there is something off about this family, but we should deal with it two different ways. After the Klopek visit, they're like, yes, I'll admit they're a little weird or right. whatever. These people are clearly psychos. But they still have their head on their shoulders about it. And it's like, it's not man versus woman, it's child versus adult. So uh, what's the deal, right? The marriage between Ray and his wife, it's actually probably like subtly beautiful because of what a support system they are to each other like you can tell they actively enjoy watching Jeopardy together we're watching the show their back and forth matters she wants his vacation to be something great because she wants great things for him you know you can tell like whatever brought them together and like again like maybe I'm overanalyzing but I think dude this is the place to do it yeah I think knowing that knowing the chemistry between both of them look Carrie Fisher rest in peace one of our greatest actresses what she does one of our greatest comedic writers as well absolutely yeah you're right you're right I know you're right what she does in this movie is balance what could have been like this nagging wife and instead it's someone who is the moral center now it's like hey I understand what you're doing 
but you need to understand how you're going about it is the wrong way. And But when she comes home at the end, she's not the nagging wife. She sits next to him on the gurney and she knows he's ashamed and she doesn't lay into him. She lets him basically apologize. That's right. the like, I, I love your hairline. It's like, I do still love you. I am going through something. I want to be a better husband. Like it's all packed in that exchange. And there's that nice thing at the end where she accepts that apology. And then when he falls out of the ambulance, she's mad. She's mad because she's like, damn. Oh, Don't start with me, Carol. Yeah. It's like we have already had that moment. Right. Now, but now, now she's but, like, Ray, now you're going back to it. Yeah, but I exactly. got to say, Ray certainly sees her as that stereotypical nagging wife. Right. But from the outside, I'm looking at it going like, don't start with me, Carol. And then in the beginning when she's like, I knew it. And he's like, what? What did you know was going to happen? What, Carol? What did you know was going to happen? I feel like Ray, I've, I've said it before, I don't think they would last. I think eventually they would split up. Interesting. And Ray would realize, oh, I really, that was a mistake on my part. Because I, I feel like he's taken her... For advantage? I mean, I don't know. That's really reading into it. Here's why, here's why I don't think they'd split up. I think that Ray, his big, boisterous pushing around of Carol, you know, like in in the best way possible, I think is a show because of who he's surrounded by, right? Right. He's got daddy issues Dern you know mm-hmm. with like his like young love it's hard to tell if they're actually in love or they just need something from each other right I think she, they're in love but do you because for me it's like she's the youth he never had because Vietnam took it away and I have no idea who he is for her because she loves that Ricky looks at her butt but also is like very devoted to him kid next door is a meatball you know so I think there is love there she but, just likes attention there's nothing wrong with that sure um, art is so I mean, look, he gives a whole speech at the beginning, right, about, like, spend a week with my wife and our mother. It's like he is such a stereotype that sometimes I do think Ray plays into who Art is. Right. You know, like, oh, yeah, I'll also be this guy. Yeah, Um, even though he really isn't. Yeah, because I think he's lost as to who he really is. I mean, that's what vacation is for him. He's like, I guess I want to relax. I don't want to do anything because I've done something my whole life. Right. You know, and and I, I think that's interesting to me. Um, because love in relationships is going to be really about how you work things out. And I, I do think like if you look at this movie as a low point in the relationship, uh, he's lying, he's doing everything wrong. But at the end, he does want it to work. And I think she is smart enough to know that about him and very forgiving, which is a good personality trait for a guy who just blew up your neighbor's house. Yeah. It's your vacation. Everyone is so good in these roles. We even talked about, look, their son, who I don't know what the actor's name is, but... Corey Danziger. Yeah, man, of course. Yeah, you would know. But uh, (laughs) he's good in every scene, and I I think you told me he didn't work again after this. I couldn't find anything else. Yeah, but he's great in it. You know, he does that great line, snarfing down that apple and and goofing around, and also just... You think about this, I'm like, God, I can't imagine being a 12-year-old kid surrounded by some of the most famous actors in Hollywood. You probably were raised on Princess Leia. Yeah. You know, you definitely know Tom Hanks is he is the biggest star in Hollywood at this totally. point. It's great. And then part of that's direction. And who knows if, like, maybe there's some terrible outtakes, but he's great right. on set and he just crushes every little scene. And, and everyone does that. Even the dog is good in this movie. The dog's fucking spectacular in this movie. Yeah. Uh, but wait, it's funny that you mentioned how Corey Danziger is billed like 11th build. That's very true. And on the insert, so I have a any Blu-ray release of this movie I have. So I have the UK one, the Region 2 one. Arrow Video did it. Good, honey. And on the insert, they have the list of the cast. They leave off Corey Danziger. I mean, it's, that's just bad agents for him. What the you fuck? Know? <laughs> You've got It's all in your contract, so... Wait, 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 yeah. no, but this is a Blu-ray insert from 2014. Yeah, but uh, it would all be contractually... That's how you get like the order of the names, too. So if, uh. if they didn't have to 
do it, they probably just didn't do it. Sorry. I, don't. I thought it was just the whoever produced the DVD package. It could be it, but legally binding, like he's in that movie, the DVDs of the movie. Yeah. So like it would be usually, maybe it's not in his contract to have to be on the poster or to be on any promotional materials, but if they didn't have to. So if that's the case with this movie and he's not a guy who was continually working, when they made that Blu-ray package, where do they dig up 20-year-old contracts of a child actor and to know what his contract says. Is there like st- a studio will always have it because they have to play residuals forever. Right. So, so they, they, they have know. A- yeah, they know. Yeah, exactly. They'll, they've known since it came out on home video the first time. It's the, you know, and they'll have a copy of it somewhere. It's probably digitized now. Um, I remember talking to a guy that produced The Sting who said he still makes $250,000 a year on residuals on The Sting. And all you really have to do at what? that point is like hire an auditor once every three or four years. And they have to have all those contracts and produce them and then tell you how much money it's made and how much you're owed. But how does the writer of Die Hard 2 get residual checks for two cents what did this guy do on the sting well he probably had a better well he produced it oh. so and also like contracts were different just in 1973 with, versus yeah. whatever 1989 i guess 88 or 88 yeah, yeah so or no Hard 2 is i think 90 years yeah exactly Sorry. so it might have been a different thing also the writer of diehard 2 maybe had a bad agent signed a bad contract but it's steven d'souza dude he was big time then but uh, he might have been replaced too. Does he, oh. do he have sole credit? Does that could that be I too? Don't know. Yeah, that's, I mean, there's a, a great point. There's that's so much point. legalese in there. Like you'd have to get a good lawyer on to explain that. You got a lawsuit on your hands, Mister. I do think the future of Hollywood. The nice thing is accessibility. Even though there are out of print Blu-rays, we talked about that. Like the adva- the advantages of Netflix owning some of these things that you can rent from them. Right. That is still a hurdle. We need to jump but you can now rent most of the criterion movies on the criterion channel you can now subscribe to tcm and if you want to watch the magnificent ambersons right now you can do that you couldn't do that there (laughs) you can do it in this apartment because there's a blu-ray on the wall but you can you can watch these movies i think um the best years of our lives is one of my favorite movies of all time i think great movie it's like criminally underseen for a long time it was like very hard to get a copy of that movie Uh Uh but you can watch it now on demand so like those things are happening they are getting better accessibility is getting better and we're probably 10 to 15 years away from it being instantaneous right now most things you can click and rent on amazon sometimes the title's not available you um, say sometimes dude i feel like it's a lot more a lot more yeah so when you're getting older and more obscure things but we are but that stuff is going to come around i hope as long as there's an appetite for it also accessibility to movies is creating movie buffs at a much younger age you know for me it was borrowing dvds from a friend i had in high school named rich shout out rich he was the original like kid on your block who owned every movie oh yeah so it's like if i couldn't find it you could borrow it from him super nice guy and and was so enthusiastic about you watching the stuff you liked and we didn't always agree but we always found that and when you're when i was in college you meet more of those people then you realize oh your school library has them you get them i went i went to grad school same deal and then suddenly it's like the accessibility i think i told you i've had netflix since it began so it's like you have these things i spent three or four years years of my life from i guess high school which is crazy to think at least into college whenever netflix i think netflix came out in 2007 maybe no no i was getting discs in 04 04 okay maybe i didn't have it in 04 so maybe not from beginning let's say from 2007 through the end of 2010 i was getting three discs a week or three three discs at a time and Mm -hmm. i was watching one new movie every day for four years it's like oh that's crazy but there are so many movies to watch right and i think about a kid born today that will get so many more decades and we're we've hit like the hundred years of like pure cinema of like actual not just um 
shooting at a screen or yeah like, shooting a screen or like the arrival of a train you know yeah. like but actual cinema and mm-hmm. there's so much to pick through it, it sucks thinking that like some older movies will, have, will be lost because of the stilted acting or because we didn't like whatever but a lot of those movies still survive I mean I just watched it happen one night with somebody who had never seen it before and I was That's like one of my top five it's great it's a great movie and it holds up and and maybe it doesn't hold up in the way that culturally sensitively, but it holds up in like a great bantery. Like we're going to do this. Like the walls of Jericho scene is like, it's like these are very fun things that you can discover and, and there's accessibility now. Behold the walls of Jericho. Uh, maybe not as thick as the ones that Joshua blew down with his trumpet, but a lot safer. If you dig hard enough, you can pretty much almost find anything. I, I hear you. I don't know if I agree, but I'm more of a physical media guy. Back to the bears. Yeah. What's your favorite part? My favorite line is, uh, you know, Satan is our pal. I just oh, think that's yeah. so funny, the chant. I want to kill everyone. Uh-huh. I don't think that's my favorite scene, though, which is funny. For me, my favorite scene is the femur scene with the dog. Great scene. I think it's like there's a great depth of field there, right? It's mm-hmm. two guys arguing. But they're going to suspect me! They're not going to suspect anybody. They're- you see the dog in the background. You see it carrying something. It draws your eye, but to a first-time viewer, you're not going to know what it is. Then the viewer's ahead of the characters, which yeah. is something I think is so hard to pull off, because totally. usually when you're ahead of the characters, you can get bored. But right. it's just in this, it's like pure comedy. Just pure, I don't want to believe what I know is true. Right. You know, it's like, uh, it cannot be a human femur that was dug up next door. Look at the size of this thing. Because they belong to a chicken or something. Exactly. Yeah, perfect. Good call <laughs> but it, it's that. I, that is such a good scene. It's so hard to replicate that the purity. Your neighbor are murdering people and so much of it is in the performances because you can write that scene like the dog brings it blah blah and I think it's so hard to sell but it definitely speaks volumes to who those guys are as actors but also who Joe Dante is as a director not cutting away letting it stay wide not right. doing that obvious insert of like it's a bone you know it's right. just like in his hand. It's, yeah you're right it's smart and, and layered and, and probably why it holds up so well to repeated viewings it, it is good job on the actors that we know and they don't. But I feel like that also goes to the writing and the direction of like the Hitchcock Absolutely. bomb under the table thing. Yes, yeah. It, that, it's like we know the bomb is there, they don't. It's one of the theories, yeah. Like, uh, what's that um, Charlton Heston movie with the. Touch of Evil? Yeah, Touch of Evil, the opening of Touch of Evil, where it's Great like, theme. okay, we know this, that literally is a bomb in a trunk driving around, you're following the car, and yeah, you're like, you're oh right. my God, like, when is this gonna blow up? The bomb, yeah. you know? Do you know, the, you know the story behind that first day of shooting, Touch of Evil? I do not. Uh, Orson Welles directed it. The studio did not want him to direct it because he was like trouble to them, right? Yeah, yeah. And so it's the first day of shooting and time passes and they're not getting anything shot. Not, they haven't called action yet. Cool. And it's like, it's getting to be the end of the day and they don't even have one shot. And the studio's going, we got to fucking lose this guy. Then calls action. It's that one take that's like nine minutes or yeah, something. Yeah. And it's like, boom, they shot 10 pages today or whatever. Right, yeah, yeah. And it was like, oh, okay, we're good. Never mind. That's amazing. I can't. It's hard to think like Orson Welles making Citizen Kane, having that career, and then 20 years later, like still maybe being canned from your own movie. Cause Dude, he was a pariah in Hollywood for the last decades of his life. I mean, yeah. he had to live with Peter Bogdanovich. Like, he yeah. was doing wine commercials. Yeah. Well, part of that is like the eating himself to death, right? Yeah. I mean, it's like, the, unfortunately, like optics wise at the time, and I mean, Brando, I think, had similar issues. Uh, it's a vicious cycle. Let's do a theoretical here. Sure. Let's say the movie is getting remade. Absolutely. The right people are involved. Okay. <laughs> now, again, I just want to stay, say again, I don't want to remake. Of and course. I don't think this should happen. Yeah. But let's just say it does. I feel like the temptation, because this was my first thought, and I think it's the wrong one to act on, if Tom Hanks is involved, is to make him the Klopex. 
it's definitely the first inclination and like part of me is like oh I'd love to hear him do uh, the accent he did in the terminal but uh, for for evil yeah if you want to watch Tom Hanks be evil you can go watch that piece of shit Coen Brothers movie. The Lady in. Killers? I do not care for that yeah, movie. It's their worst, in my opinion, the Coen Brothers' worst movie. Absolutely. You think that's a win? No! I don't want to see Tom Hanks as a bad guy. It's like what you were saying as a kid. Oh, hot take. I'm, I can't wait to disagree with you, but go ahead. Oh, oh yeah, I'll go yeah. ahead. Um, when you said growing up, like, a Tom Hanks movie was a safe bet for the fam because you knew it was a certain type of movie and you knew certain things weren't going to happen in it. And I feel like that's his strong point, and I know you want to branch out. And I say, hey... He did it. He did it in Lady Killers in 2004. Didn't work. Please never do it again. Whoa! My interest in him as a bad guy is, is he, in my opinion, the answer is yes, but is he good enough that he can take how I feel about Tom Hanks and subvert it to a place where I could hate him or be afraid of him? No. And, and I don't know because the, the Lady Killers quality of the movie or not, he's playing over the top, right? Yeah, and he's even a fun bad in that. Yeah, exactly. And I don't... uh, Which would be a Klopek bad. Right. It would be a Klopek, yeah. But could he be like a James Bond bad guy? You know, could he be like a... Someone who tortures somebody. Could he be Could no. he be that person? I don't know. No. You know, I, we've seen uh, Kevin Costner did like this Halle Berry movie a while ago where he played like the... Mr. Brooks? Yeah, Mr. Brooks. That's a good movie. Yeah. He, but I don't know. He's like good as a bad guy, but I don't know if he surpassed being Kevin Costner as a bad guy. Interesting. Because um, he's always going to be Ray Kinsella for me from Field Dreams. But oh, I... But I, I Bull Durham's my yeah. Kevin Costner. Yeah, there you go. Yeah. Uh, baseball, baseball. He's always going to be Baseball Costner. Of course. Uh, of course. Yeah. Honestly, I think it would be interesting to have him come back and do the Bruce Dern type role. Um, ah, I'd be okay with that. Yeah. Look, even the Walter would be good if it, if it wasn't Tom Hanks. Right. If Tom Hanks didn't become Tom Hanks, yeah. it would be cool for him to be the Walter. But it's like, you don't have him in it just for the beginning and end of the movie. Yeah, and I also think if you remade this movie today, I don't think that the Klopex would be the bad guys. I think that we're... Right, no, they. I yeah. feel like today we'd have to commit to the original idea for the movie, which is that Ray and Art are the bad guys. Exactly, yeah. Uh-huh. Or you would have to you'd have to do it as like, they're the Smiths and they're white supremacists, but they're nice white supremacists. Or like they're the wrong, you know, like we're eco-terrorists, you know? It's yes. Like, what's like, what's wrong with like the, like you get like Dave Franco and Alison Brie to play like eco-vegan hippies who maybe are blowing up. The, you know what I mean? It's like, yes. should we really be looking at these weird kids? They're not raising their family like us. They're like baby birding food in their mouths and you do like a judgmental couple in their like late 40s of like their kids are a little older. They don't have anybody to parent. They try to parent the people next door sort of thing, you know? Yeah, I agree. I know you're just saying it as an example. Sure. But I wouldn't want to make any scenario where we root for a white supremacist at all. I know what you're right. saying where it's like, yeah. on the outside, they look like bad people, but yeah. that, that that steps too close to there's good people on both sides. Of course. No, no, I know. Like, yeah. Give me the... Like, no, that's a, but, that, but that's part of, I think, maybe the scariest question, right? It's like, could you make there's good people on both sides of the movie where it's like, fuck, no, there's not, you know? Like, like where that's it, like the... I feel like even yeah. if you could, I don't want to... Right. So that it's, they have it in their corner, then it's course. their movie or something, yeah. right? No, I know, yeah. I... I don't disagree with you at all. I think that's a challenge of filmmaking for me to be as a writer. It's like how how close could you toe to the line? The danger is like, look, Fight Club is a movie about toxic masculinity that's on a lot of toxic males' walls, right? So it's yeah, like you gotta yeah. you don't Good wanna point. you don't wanna do that. Hit me in the ear. Well Jesus, I'm sorry. Ow. What's the core question that the Burbs asks, which is What do you think they're eating over there, right? I think how much responsibility do you have to your neighborhood and how much responsibility do you have to decency? Who knows? Right. And and for this movie it's like decency dies at the end of this movie. Right. And it blows up with that house. Yeah. But it saves the neighborhood. And I, I think that's a hard thing to think about. 
now at the time it's very funny right it's like it's just like fuck decency yes you should look out for your own no matter what yeah and i think now we're such a hyper tribalized country that i wonder how to tell that story now i also feel like uh ray blames art for everything and while he was the catalyst or like the the instigation Ray, you made a lot of your own fucking choices. And guess who dug all those holes, bro? But you know, art is, metaphorically today, art is those fake Facebook things. So it's like, Obama <laughs> did this. You know, it's like that. Yeah, it you're is. right. I you don't know? like to think of that. I know, right. but that's right. what it is. It's the art is the awfulness that inspires good people to become awful. <laughs> but the problem that the burbs would have today is that the good people who become awful do something to somebody more awful than them. Yeah. And, I, and again, I think it's going to be so hard to find what that balance is. You really have to just start from the core and work your way backwards because as I say this out loud, I'm like, I don't want there to be, like you said, any version where someone evil could say it's the right thing to do. Right. right? Where like you do, and that's why I said it's like this post 9-11 sort of Patriot Act movie. Yeah. Of like, uh, like fuck the Dark Knight being the Patriot Act movie. This is the Patriot Act movie. <laughs> you know, it's, this is like, not like we're going to zoom in on your house. Yeah. This is happening in your neighborhood. You should be hyper vigilant and if you don't think the cops will get involved, you should get involved. Because you know what? You're probably right. And that is a dark thing to think about in today's culture because of the abuse that a lot of people go through nowadays. But I don't want to ruin the burps for anybody because I think this is like a beautiful movie also that's about well, taking care of your family and whatever. But I think like when you look at it, again, this is like a movie made pre-9-11, pre-Patriot, pre-awfulness. It, it holds up to that standard, but by today's standards, like you said, you either have to go back, and that's a very cynical ending, right? Of, yeah. I ruined the people's who came to America, the immigrant family next door. I ruined their life. And I'm going to go to jail forever and be separated from my wife and kids because I ruined their life. Maybe that's a lesson that needs to be learned. I really do like your hair. For me, I'm, I'm an optimist and, and maybe in a naive sense, I find that at the end of this movie, like love wins. Like, and I don't, I don't mean that completely unfacetiously. Like the love between Ray and his wife wins out, the love of your neighborhood and of your neighbors wins. And I hate that it comes at the cost of like people not fitting in, right? After they've done everything, isn't cultural, it's evilness. About a nine on the tension scale, Rube. Whether or not the Klopeks are bad doesn't wind up mattering. It matters for Hollywood and the studio and the ending of that movie. Right. But I do feel like Ray has chosen Carol and been like, I'm so sorry that I let toxic masculinity art (laughs) corrupt who I was, which is a good person. And I I don't want to become a hyper version of myself reliving who I used to be, Bruce Dern. And I don't want to become uh, Walt, who is alone. You know, right. and and I don't know what happened to his wife. Maybe she's passed away, which is very sad. But I don't want to become a man alone no, with his we, dog. Art, we see Art's wife. Oh, that's his wife that goes with him. That, oh, no, sure. no, no, Art at the end the, in pink. My wife is home. One thing I also got to pick your brain about is why you think I love it so much because I didn't see this as a kid for whatever reason. Last year, a few months ago, I just started watching it every day or multiple, and I didn't know why. And so here we are today. Did you watch it for the first time, like when you revisited it before or after you were divorced? Did no, you talk I talk about that on your podcast? Yeah, like, dude, yeah. Well, like, if you listen to the last episodes, okay. I talk about a lot of embarrassing shit. Okay. My wife is home. All of it, even the first time I saw it happened three months after my wife and I split. Yeah. So if you're asking me to be an armchair psychologist about why. Yeah, I want your medical opinion. Wouldn't it be nice to have a doctor in the neighborhood? I've known you at this point for three hours. That's right. <laughs> but what I, what I think it is, is that at the end of this movie, when Carol and Ray walk into their suburban house that's untouched, right? They've burnt the chaotic house down. You've seen 
Art's house, right? What's happened to that? It's on fire. Yeah. And his wife is home. Your wife's home! Right. You know, and he now has to reconcile with all the shit he's talked the whole movie. And he realizes his house is on fire. It's burning from the inside. Right. right? And you're like, uh-huh. so you have a destruction on one side. Your house is on fire! But Ray, who's chosen love, walks in with Carol to rebuild a home. Right. To say like, hey, I'm not perfect and uh, few people are perfect in this world. But I think if we work together, we can keep this home from burning down. Right. And we'll do it together. And we can't do it alone. Art couldn't do it alone. The Klopeks are evil. Yeah. The world is so fucked up. We can do this together. And, and I think that's echoed in uh, Bruce Dern's character when he walks in with his wife. Like, they are in love, right? I, we, I joked about it earlier, but I do think they are a competent couple who get something from each other. Soldier's way. Save the day. Get in the house. And we see it in Ricky's reaction. I love this neighborhood. Right? right, I love this country. God, I love this street. But he does walk back in with his friends, the people you're surrounded with, and I think that in a life experience, and I've never been divorced, I've been through enough breakups that I think there's a part of you that's very optimistic about what the future is, mm-hmm. and despite problems maybe you've had in your life, or despite a house being on fire, you know that there's a house out there you can walk into at some point that won't be, and the only way to keep doing that is to keep walking. For me, The Burbs is a very optimistic movie. Even though I've talked about how cynical you can look at it, and I find there's like a real depth of perception here and a depth of character and a, and a belief that at its core, America can be great, but only if we love each other. And I think maybe for you, again, knowing you three hours, <laughs> the beauty of The Burbs for you and the rewatching of The Burbs is a promise of a utopia that you know doesn't exist unless you're willing to create it through loving something, maybe loving somebody. Whoa, dude. So yeah, that's that's where I'm going with. But yeah. Dude. That really shook me to my core right now. <laughs> I mean, I can, the divorce angle has come up. Niagara Falls, Frankie Angel. But to put it like you just put it, like, I'm afraid to go out and get that myself. Yeah. So I'm in the cave all the time watching this. Yeah, you, your house might be on fire. And I don't even know what to Yeah. So I'm busy put- birds and- but the Burbs puts it out, right? It's the little things we do. I find that, like, look, I work Oh, my God, yeah, put... Oh, yeah. dude, you're blowing my mind. Continue, <laughs> continue. Go ahead. Hollywood is a very hard place. You hear no over and over. If you're a creative out here, credit card debt's a joke we all joke about, but it's like you sometimes you put your life on plastic to bet you're on yourself, and a lot of times you lose. You lose, right? You're rolling the ball, and you lose over and over again. Yeah, I, I relate to that. And the one thing that I found, I've lived here for eight years, and through the hardest, darkest, scariest parts of my life, the one thing I found is that, like, not just watching a movies and escapism, but being with your friends, walking into the house with the people who you know will keep you safe, not the arts, you know, who, who will also tell you the house is on fire, who tell you, Hollywood's not going to buy that. Maybe you should think of another career. Maybe you should go back into copywriting. Maybe you should do this. Maybe you should move home. Maybe you should become an English teacher. It's like that sort of art um, gabbing isn't going to help you. But the people that will take you by the arm and walk you through the door and say, like, tomorrow's a new day. You're going to wake up with some scars. You're going to wake up blown up. Right. But you'll progressively get better. And the only way you can do that is to be with us, to be with me, to, to take comfort in something. You know, and maybe the burbs is your carol for now. And But I would suggest, you know, like for anyone listening to find your carol in other people. For me... A lot of it's been volunteering, saying, like, why do I love movies? Sharing my love of movies in volunteering 
I do young storytellers, so I teach fifth graders how to write screenplays once a week. It's very, very fun. Um, But it's also like the friends and mentors. I have really great mentors that I think keep me, they're like my carols, you know, in like a non-romantic way of like saying like, we'll walk you through this door. Someone walked us through the door. We'll walk you through. And and someday when you've got your own house, you'll walk somebody into this house. Or you have somebody that when you go into a Klopex house and they're trying to feed you sardines, you can, you have an unspoken relationship where you look at each other and she's like, just do it, honey. Eat the pretzel. And then we'll talk about it later, you know. Yeah, and that's just deal like with a, it. so much of that, right? That's like probably a metaphor for uh, pitching in Hollywood. But yeah. but it is, and I think I, maybe I got a little off topic in in the metaphor. But I do think so many houses are on fire. So many fires are going on in houses that you didn't know, right? You like yeah. art's got a marriage. That if you really think about it, it's like that, that's a problem. All they ever do is fight. It's interesting, and I, I think everyone has to figure out what that is. I've seen a lot of friends struggle with choosing the wrong thing, right? Whether it's like drugs or alcohol or something like that, like right. a way to bury it and, and say like, oh, but this makes me feel good right now. And, and but that's like kind of an art maneuver, you know? Right. Of like he's over there stuffing his face in, in the beginning, you know? It's like yeah. uh, for him, it's it's eating and danger and can. And and like this wanton, um, like no rules thing, because he's afraid of what the rules bring. I'd rather chew broken glass. So yeah, I don't, I don't know. It is tough. It, it, this is the hardest job out here, right? Being creative, trying to figure this stuff out. And I do think at the end of the day, there's like the hope that exists in the burbs is the hope that people move out here with. Nobody moves out here because they think they're going to fail. Most people move out here because they think their name's going to be outside the Cinerama Dome at the ArcLight at mm. some point, you know. Yeah. And and I've had those kind of successes, you know, like. Have I had a movie that premiered at the ArcLight? It was very, very fun. Shovel Buddies. I, yeah, Shovel Buddies. Yeah, but it I, played it at the ArcLight. Yes, yeah, it was very fun. I got to go. Oh, dude, awesome! Yeah, I'll plug the Cody Broder episode of this podcast. He came <laughs> with me. It was very fun. Um, but I've had a lot of movies that didn't premiere. You know, right. I, a lot of heartbreak, a lot of things that got optioned and died, or a lot of things that I was excited about that the town told me they didn't enjoy. You know, and, and I think again, it's very easy to lean to those art type tendencies of like, I should do this, or I should go right. crazy, or I should blow up Twitter with how much I hate so-and-so filmmaker who stole my idea, or blah, blah, blah. But a lot of what happens for me is that I go find my carols, you know, whether mm-hmm. it's my girlfriend or just, like I said, my mentors and my happy place movies that I'll watch, like the burbs. I'll find those things and I'll say, like, let's go into the house that's not on fire for a while. Right. You know? And then at some point, let's hope we settle there and then know that it's your duty once you figure out what that house is um, to walk other people in it too, right? Because again, the moral of the burbs is that like love has to win out. It's like figuring out a way to spread that love later. Right. Yeah. Whew, dude. This got deep. But that's real stuff. That's real. Yeah. I feel like you're, this is another scratch of the right surface for me. The obvious answer is that it's an escape, but the specifically that I watch it because it's my Carol because I, it's not Carol. I mean, I have friends and stuff. Of course. Yeah. But all of them are having kids and things and growing up and having their own life. Yeah. Moving to the suburbs. And yeah. Moving out of LA. And it's like, yeah. I got married earlier than all my friends. Now I'm divorced alone, live in this cave and don't want to do anything but watch movies. Particularly the burbs. I was the first person in my friend group to get on the blacklist to sell a script and have a movie made. And then nothing, it feels like, happened since then. But I obviously work, and I still write, and I, I have managers and all that stuff. But it felt like a wedding that then, like, the honeymoon ended, and you're like, oh, I'm now, like, propping up this career. And, like, yeah. what's it doing for me? You know, and, like, do I love this anymore? And, and you have to, like, constantly restart that love. You know, whether it's, like, finding a way to... And your career probably should never be your carol. Right. But it's like, (laughs) well, that's what I'm picking, though. Yeah, exactly. So like if that's what you're picking, then it's like, how do you continue to stay in love with it? And if it's rewatching the burbs over and over again, that's probably healthy. But I think 
like the best part about your Burbs rewatch that I would say, and again, like as an armchair therapist, is that you're bringing people in to do it. Yes. Yeah, that's... Um, and yeah. I think that's the most important thing for you because you seem like a guy that likes to ask questions. Uh, one thing. But also likes to find your own answers. Well, that certainly makes sense. Mm-hmm. And I think the most important part of this exercise is meeting new people for you and rewatching the burbs with somebody new. Um, it'd be interesting, yeah. yeah. Art's got a gun. I mean, because it's cool because it's my favorite movie and... Y- I yeah. brought over a guy that I just met. Of course, yeah. And now we're buds. We watch the burbs. I know. Eat some pizza. Now we're buds. Yeah. I love it. Should it's we weird. share hot sauce? Yes. Yeah. That's right. But I hear you. The thing you said about the blacklist, mine is not nearly as successful, but I wrote for the reboot of Pop Up Video. Oh, amazing. Yeah. In 2011 and 12. Yeah, great. And I got two daytime Emmy nominations. Look at you. Yeah. But it, it's, it didn't mean shit afterwards, and it certainly doesn't mean shit now in 2020. Yeah, I, I get that. I mean, like, this is like a callous thing to say, but I feel like the Burbs and this Burbs podcast won't mean shit in 2030. But, <laughs> but like... Ouch. Sure was damp today. What it'll mean <laughs> for you, right, is that it'll, it'll going to change your life in some way. Yeah. Right? And I think that, like, well, oftentimes we look at life change and we say, like, that thing meant something. And actually what happens is what happened after that thing means something. Uh. And for me, the journey that you're going on isn't about the burbs. It's about what you hope happens after the burbs. And at some point, I think uh. what you're going to need to let go of is things are already happening post the burbs. So it's like, shouldn't be the addiction of watching this movie. It should be the reality of dealing with what happens after the credits roll. You know, and at some point you're going to say this podcast is done and you'll be okay with that. And the reason you'll be okay with it is that I, again, as an armchair psychologist, you are going to accept that the love you have of the burbs is love you're putting into a movie and the love you probably should be putting into yourself, right? You've just lost a lot of weight. Remember you telling me that? Mm -hmm. Obviously, you're a talented writer. You have a lot to say. I mean, whatever you're going to do next is going to be, maybe it's finishing the book you're writing on the burbs and saying, like, what I love about myself is that I can write and that I have a lot to say and that my obsessive tendencies uh, can be used for what the moral of the burbs is, which is bringing people into the house. Right now, it's the house of the burbs. Right. Later, it'll be the burbs book. But I don't know what happens after that. Yeah. But you'll decide what that is, you know, and, and, and I'm excited to know where it goes and intrigued to see what the post burbs thing is while knowing that I actively got to be a part of the thing, you know? Yeah. Hey, good work. When I wrote Shovel Buddies, it was a script that I wrote when I was in grad school and it was just an exercise in me dealing with something. Mm-hmm. I had a friend in college who got leukemia and died when I was in grad school. Or I guess he died after I moved to L.A., but he was sick when I was in grad school. And I kept thinking, he was a huge movie buff. Just one of the the best and brightest people. I kept thinking, like, how unfair is it that his light will be put out? Because a lot of the movies I watched and a lot of the movies I loved were were things that he recommended, lent me, did things. And, oh, yeah. And when I moved to Hollywood, after he passed away, I knew that I had to finish what I thought Shovel Buddies was, which was the beginning of a story of how scared I was that his light would be put out. And then once it was done, it was how do I deal with that light not shining anymore? And how do I write about what that feeling is, right? So I wrote this script, but I knew that nobody would care about that because there's so many fucking sick kid movies. So I wrote a dead kid movie. And it's about people whose friend is dead and they find his last will and testament. He wants to be buried in his Philadelphia Eagles jersey. I'm a huge Eagles fan. And when they go, break into his house, steal his jersey, drive it to the crematorium to put it on before he gets cremated the next day, they wind up accidentally stealing his dead body and then have to literally carry it around with them as they literally carry his memory with them. Right. And 
And I remember getting to page 40 of that script and they have the body and they're driving away from the crematorium. And I was like, I don't know what the fuck I'm going to do from here. Right. <laughs> but neither did they. And I felt like that emotional vulnerability is why that script became a big success in the movie. I guess maybe less so for Hollywood reasons, but the script was great and it became my calling card and got me a lot of meetings and it got me the career I have, which isn't maybe the career I thought it would be. Let's say almost seven years after I was on the blacklist. But it's a career I'm really proud of because I, I became the guy that wrote the weird script. You got to read this script, man. Right. You guys fucking have to read it. Why? Right. Just the weirdest thing happens 40 pages in and then you just like are crying the rest of the time. Right. You know, and I knew it was like, I, I pitched it as really sad, super bad. So right. you laugh for 40 pages and then suddenly you're just crying for the next 40. If my friend Mike was still alive, I think that he would like that movie. That's great, dude. And that's all I cared about when I was writing it. Yeah. Was that he would be proud that I finished it and that it was good. And the fact that it became a movie is even better. So thank you, Mike Chobot, for pushing me to be a better film student and for pushing me from beyond to not give up. And I think that's, yeah, that's That's kind of what I take from it. Yeah. That's pretty awesome. Thank you. That's really cool that you're able to do that for your friend and like you saw it through like it didn't like you're saying there's so many projects out here that can become like i love disney but i worked uh, right. for the digital department for, and so i'm kind of bitter about some things like i feel like your joys can turn into annoyances yeah now i just need somebody else to die so i can get another movie made you know yeah. <laughs> For this podcast, it's like you maybe don't know what the ending is. You don't know what the emotional journey you're going on is in this podcast. But I do know you're going on it. And you'll know when it's over. And I I think that's the hard thing with obsessions and things we get obsessed with or the things that give us that (laughs) instant gratification is that it's hard to know when when it's time to move into something else. You know, Dude, that is 100% true. That's a good point of like, when is it okay to walk away and say it's still my favorite thing? But it, it, I don't know. I don't know. I, so when I was in high school, freshman year of high school, my best friend moved to Florida. And I, I don't remember it hurting. I mean, it hurt a lot then. I don't think it had like a profound effect on me. But the summer before he left, we knew he was moving. Uh, we were hanging out every day together. So I, I told, we watched the Guy Ritchie movie Snatch every day. Yeah. And it was like we were memorizing the movie. And for me, that was like the friendship bracelet. You know? Yeah, like, yeah, like yeah. The, It's like, y'all know Snatch and you don't know Snatch. And now every time you think of Snatch, like you'll yeah. think of me, which is like a probably a weird thing for like in no yeah, I love that like, friendship bracelet yeah exactly it. So, but it like made sense and now like I haven't talked to that kid since I was a junior in high school I, I have no we're not Facebook friends I haven't seen him in decades but like I'll always remember right. that movie and, and I think that when I said earlier like in 2030 you like this podcast may not matter it probably won't but you might remember doing this podcast and it might be a story you tell like I watch this every day and yeah. you might revisit it. and I just recently watched Snatch again after watching The Gentleman which I really enjoyed I can't think of Guy Ritchie now without having an emotional response to what I did in eighth grade to someone who was, I think friendship at the time means more than whatever it became. You know what I mean? Like, and he had fizzled out and that's kind of what friendships do sometimes. But it's like, oh, that's like Snatch will always be like a best friend movie. You know, it's yeah. like, oh, we were best friends and that was like a thing we did. Um, and that's sort of like the burbs, like we talked about earlier, like what's your burbs experience? It'll always be that rainy day in Duck, North Carolina. And I'm sitting there getting to watch a movie that I don't think I would have been allowed to watch not on vacation. You know? <laughs> like, right. uh, and it was great. And, and the TV edit's no different than the edit I saw later. At some point, I do think you'll be, you're, you said you're 35. Yeah. You'll be 55 and you'll watch The Burbs again and realize you haven't watched it in a decade. You know? And it'll be that thing that you think got you to where you are, but didn't become the crutch you needed to get where you're going. Oh, fuck. That's pretty much what I got. <laughs>
That dude, that's pretty fucking good. What else is on my mind, grapes? When you say Philly, what do people say stuff back to you more? Rocky? Is it a people say rock? It'll always be Rocky for me. I'm from Westchester, Pennsylvania. It's 20 miles outside the city. Mm -hmm. If you've ever seen the movie Marley and Me, it was shot there. So, uh, (laughs) like, uh, it's weird to watch that movie now because, like, the opening it says it's in Boston. I think it's snowing, but it's actually Main Street in Westchester, and they just filled it with snow. They shot it in June. Cool. Um, Cool. It's very cool. Like they fill it up and like Jennifer Aniston and Owen Wilson live in our town for a summer and it, it was awesome to like not only have celebrities living in your town but also like movies were being made and that's when I was deciding to become uh, to, to move to Hollywood and become a filmmaker like I was in college for screenwriting and, and it was like this is my dream and my dream is here right now and this feels like it's going to make it my dream right um, Westchester Pennsylvania also home of M. Night Shyamalan's The Village that village that they're in is like across the street from my parents house no shit super weird same deal they filmed it there it was cool oh, I uh, forgot about M. Night he's another big Philly yeah so he is from Philadelphia proper but just outside uh, by Villanova's campus he has a big studio there now my parents are always like why can't you just make a movie here or there I'm like I would love to if, yeah. if anybody listens knows M. Night Shyamalan, put me in touch. <laughs> That's what I'd yeah. say. Well, my mom is like, there's a burgeoning film world coming together in Indiana or over here. It's like, my mom, she like, did you know Bradley Cooper and Miles Teller are from here? Maybe you could uh, like meet them and do no, something with them. No. I'm like, yeah, you know, I don't know why I haven't hit up Bradley Cooper. Yeah. Um, but movie wise, people always say Rocky. Now, I don't know if Rocky... It is like the quintessential Philly movie, right? It's an underdog story about a guy who doesn't win at the end, right. you know, but who lays it on the line to prove something to himself, yeah. right? Going 12 rounds with Apollo Creed is probably as insane as watching the Burbs, you know, <laughs> like 80 yeah, yeah. times, yeah. So I, I think... But there's lots of good Philadelphia cinema. Creed. Yeah, Creed. Absolutely. I Creed, dude. We talked while the movie was going, that nightmare sequence is... Like everything looks like it's out of Midsommar, but the way it's done is funny. You know, it's like, oh, they're wearing a dead boar's head, right. and like there's blood coming down their face. You know, it's like it should be in a Saw movie, or it should be like a poster for the new Purge, but it works in this comedy because it's of its juxtaposition against a barbecue spit. Joe Dante does a good job, like you said, bringing in the writer, Did I ask you? bringing in the editor, allowing the actors to improv, giving them elbow room, and then cutting the best version of this movie where the zany parts still feel real and the real parts still feel zany enough to not be. Um, obtrusive. Hey, Rumsfeld, dude! What are you doing with the gun? This is something you need to do now to deal with what you need to deal with, but there'll be some day where this isn't what you need to deal with anymore, you know? Yeah, it takes a lot of time to deal with this, though. Yeah. Editing and stuff. Yeah, Now I'm wondering, it's like a double-edged sword where I'm like, I love it. My happiest moments are literally right now watching the burbs with someone new or old and then talking about it. Literally is happiest I, I get. Yeah. And then when I upload it after Dave. I think if you ask Bill Lawrence what his happiest moments were, at one point it was probably beyond Scrubs, right? Yeah. And, and writing and creating Scrubs. Mm-hmm. But I do think he worked after that. That's what life and maturity is, and that's what like progress is. I think there's very few people that stay doing one thing for that long, you know, yeah. that don't progress. And I think, look, look at uh, Brian Cranston. He's the perfect dad on Malcolm in the Middle, and he's also the perfect guy in Breaking Bad. And the perfect smarmy dentist on Seinfeld. Yeah, we find it fun to swap now and then. Hang on, let me see how we're doing. Are you yeah. doing okay? Yeah, I think so. I probably, we should probably wrap it up Holy soon. shit, dude. Yeah, we've been talking for a while. We've been talking for two hours? Yeah, yeah. Oh my God, let's get, I'm so sorry. That's okay, yeah, yeah. Uh, well, okay, well, before I let you out of here, yeah. there's a rating system. Great. There are three things that you can say about the burbs, okay? There's one, ABB, that's always be burbsin. That means you think burbs is pretty dope and you should always be burbsin. Two is KBB. That means you don't want nothing to do with the burbs. Only Kurt should be burbsin because you don't want to do it. Number three is the preferred one that's only been chosen once. 
That's to Bitboat. The Burbs is the best of all time. And that means the Burbs is the best of all time. The Burbs is the best of all time. Well, I'll tell you what. I'm going to tell your audience, you should always be Burbs in. Hell yeah. Hell yeah. Thank you, sir. I love it. And like a special Jason uh, sign off here is that I think much like the Burbs teaches us, if you are choosing to do something from love and not fear, you're choosing the right thing to do. Ah. And I think that's important. So if you're going to Burbs, Burbs with love. I love it, dude. That's great. All right. And that's going to do it for Jason Hellerman. Uh, It's good that I don't have work to do. So ideally, I cannot stay up all night to edit this stuff. But I ended up doing it again anyway. Anyway. All right. See you next week with either my friend Martha or maybe this test up with Danielle. Or who knows? Who knows what's going to happen? But what I want to do is I want to write a short story from the perspective of Walter. Like calling his son-in-law to take him to the hospital or whatever. And then coming home and finding out his dog's kidnapped, blah, blah, blah. But I'm going to call it. I'm going to call it. No. This is Walter. And it's going to be a picture of him with like his arms crossed. Because remember on the, the bones when they say, this is Walter. This book coming at you. Hard-hitting news. No, this is Walter. But all I know is I got a lot of time on my hands and I cannot wait to focus all of that energy to KBB and making sure that we ABB because to Bitboat. Always be burpsing. Go, Come out of here.